what happens when the children are home alone? Chaos. Okay, there we go. Well, we know in one household what happens when the children are home alone. Or, or maybe with a babysitter. So, so you know, we're, maybe we're, we're all in kind of different, uh, different stages, right? Um, or maybe some of, there, maybe, and there are some children here or, or young people here. So what happens when, when that scenario takes place? Do, do the children obey the rules? Do the children uh, get along? Do, do, they, uh, do they look out for one another? Do they show compassion on one another? Do those things happen that if their parents were there, they'd probably be more likely to do them, right? To do those things. So I've... I've only had this happen a few times, um, but when our children were a little bit younger and they had a babysitter, here's the kinds of things that would happen. Oh, um, our, our parents let us do that, or oh yeah, it's okay for us to do that. Oh yeah, my, parent, my parents never, don't, don't mind if that takes place, right? Those kinds of things. Have you ever said that? No. No, probably not. No, nobody here has ever said anything like that. Or when our girls got old enough to where daddy and mommy could just leave the house and leave them alone, we would start to get, uh, about the time they started getting cell phones and things like that, we'd start to get these text messages. So-and-so won't listen to me. So-and-so's doing this. This is happening. That is happening. And, and we, we're like, what happens when the parents are away? What happens when we're not with them and we can't supervise them and we can't hold them accountable? Will they obey? Or will they continue to grumble and argue and dispute with one another? Well, guess what? We are the children. You and me, every single one of you, we are all the children who are prone to disobey, are prone to grumble and complain, are prone to argue and dispute, because here we are, Jesus has gone to heaven, He's not with us now, we have the Spirit... We have the rules, we have the laws, we have God's Word, we have His design for us, uh, but yet the question remains, are we being obedient? Are we being mature? Are we being responsible to do what it is that He's called us to do in His absence? So the Bible has an answer for that. In fact, the Philippians chapter 2 has an answer for that in this very passage that we're going to look at this morning. So, would you look at Philippians chapter 2 with me? Here we are continuing in our series in the letter of, of Paul to the Philippians. The letter of Paul to the Philippians, our series that we've titled The Gospel of Joy. And let's read this together and see how this fits in with that theme, how we can have joy in the gospel today. So follow along with me as I read aloud, Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. 
even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word today. Thank you that you have given it to us uh, to, to know, to study, to meditate on, and especially to obey. Help us this morning to hear from you. Give us the humility in our hearts to accept your word as it is a word from you and not a word from man. And give us, God, the insight to understand what you would have us to understand. And Lord, the power by the Holy Spirit to be obedient to it, God. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, here we are looking at a, a, a passage in Philippians. Uh, the message uh, title is Joy in the God Who Works. Joy in the God Who Works. The God who works all things, who is in us, who has done for us. So the big idea today is this. Because God works in us, we live to obey. See, there are commands in here. Did you catch those commands as, we, as I read through, as you followed along? Uh, work out your own salvation, he says uh, for them to do. He says to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then he says to, uh, that you should be glad and rejoice with me. He gives these very specific commands in this text. And, and if we just look at those commands, we, we would find three very important things for us to be obedient to and for us to walk out of here and go, yeah, let's go do it. All right, rah, rah, here we go. But there's a gospel message in this passage that I don't want us to miss. That our motivation is not just to follow the rules. Our motivation is not just to simply do our duty. But our motivation is to live to obey because God works in us. Look with me at verse 13 before we take a look at some of these commands and see some of these other phrases. Look with me at verse 13 because this is a theological truth that grounds everything in this, in this small passage that we've looked at today. I will read it again. It is, for it is God who works in us. For it is God who works in us. And just, just if we take that passage by itself, it is God who works in us. We see that this, um, this truth is something that Paul has been saying to the Philippians since the beginning of his letter. When he said to them, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We saw, when we looked at that passage before, we saw that that is a, a gospel statement. It's a statement that it's God who began a good work in us, and that is He who will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. That the gospel is a process that we have been brought into through faith in Jesus. This process takes us from unbelief, takes us from rebellion, takes us from not understanding who He is and, and what God is all about, and it takes us into faith. It takes us into affection for Jesus and His, and his ways. For, it takes us into understanding. It takes us into growing in our relationship with Him and growing in who we are as a person. It takes us into repentance where we are, are, are not just sorry for the things that we have done wrong. We're not just sorry about the way that we missed the mark and, and God's plans and intentions for us. But it takes us into repentance where we turn away from that and put our faith and our belief and yes, our, our walk and our way of life, our habits uh, in line with, with God. And that's a, whole, that's a process and I look out among us, and I see a whole bunch of people who are in that same process. In different stages, perhaps, dealing with different things. The, 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 the weaknesses that I have are not the weaknesses that you have. The, the sins that I commit are not the sins that you commit, and vice versa, right? We are all in process, 
And, God, and, and Paul is reminding the Philippians here, it is God who works in you. It is God who is doing this. He is the one who is laboring on your behalf. He is the one who provided your salvation, which he referred to in, in chapter 1, verse 28, that your salvation is from God. He is the one who's working. In fact, He's a God who's been working from all of creation. It, the Bible begins with this statement, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God has always been working. He is a God who works. And, and He didn't just work out there. He came, right? He came to earth. He became a man. He put on, or he, he emptied Himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself. This is what He did. This is the work that He did in us. And more accurately, because that word you, God who works in you, that's a plural. It should be y'all, but I didn't translate this, so... But it is God who works in y'all. All of you. He works among you. Not just individually, although He does do that. But it's a corporate statement of how God, being a man, being humbled at the cross, worked in all of us to create His family. To create a new community based on what He has done. I, I wanted to spend time talking about this because if we don't understand this gospel truth, we cannot possibly work out the rest of this. We cannot work out our own salvation on our own strength. Ephesians 2, 8-10 through 10 reminds us that, that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And it's not our own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. Our boast is not in our own works. It is Christ who worked for us. And He created or He, he made us to work for Him and to do good works. Because we are His workmanship, right? It says created in Christ Jesus for good works. For good works. That is the God who works in us and among us. How do we know? How do we know that God is working in us? That would be my first question. It was one of my questions as I was meditating on this passage this week and studying it. How do we know that God is working in us? Is it just because we do the right things? Is it because we say the right things? Because our lives do, are, are, are full of good works? Or we give our money to charity? Or we're a really nice person and we never, we never say bad words? Or um, we always take good care of our, our kids? Or we always treat our friendly, friends kindly? Is that how we know that God is working in us? Well, some of those things might be an evidence of that. But look what the last phrase of verse 13 says. Both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So what does that mean? It means, to will means to have the desire. To have the desire, the want to. Like, I want to do what is right. I want to obey. I want to glorify God. And that desire is not a natural desire. <laughs> that is not a, a fleshly desire. That is not... A, a, a natural human inclination. Our, our natural human inclination is to get away with whatever we can get away with. To, to make ourselves happy, uh, whatever the cost. But, one who has a desire for Jesus, a heart for Him, a love for God, and a love for His ways, wants to know Him, wants to be obedient so that God will be glorified, so that God's pleasure will be fulfilled. That's a sign that God is working in you. That's a sign of that. And, and then he says, and to work. 
who works in you both to will and to work. Well, he's using the same verb. He's using the same word that he talks about God working in us. So to work means to labor, to, 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 to effort. Um, and, and what I would say to that is, if we have the ability... The, the ability and the, and the motivation and the strength and the energy to do what God is asking us to do, do what we know is right, that's an indication that God is at work in us. That He is working. It's a pretty powerful thing to, to discover that when we work for Jesus that it's actually Him working in us and through us. That was what the disciples discovered. That was what the apostles learned. And that's what Paul understood as he meditated on, not only just meditated on the truth of what God has done, but as he experienced the life that God had called him to. And it was all for his good pleasure. If you find yourself desiring to and working in order for God to be glorified, in order for God to be pleased, it's a good chance that it is God who works in you, right? So, God works, right? Let's, let's look at these other three things in turn now. God works, so we work out with awe. We work out as in work out your own salvation, we work out with awe. So, did you know that as you grow older, your, your muscles start to deteriorate? I learned this about the age of 30-something, and I realized, boy, if I don't keep working out my muscles, they're going to deteriorate. They're going to degrade and they're going to get smaller and, and I'll become more and more frail. And now that I've passed 40, um, I'm fighting even harder against the degradation of time and, and the decay of my body. That as we get older, our muscles naturally start to degrade. And if we're not careful, if we, if we stop moving, uh, eventually they'll atrophy. Um, you've seen it, I'm sure you've seen numerous examples of this. When somebody gets sick near the end of life and they end up bedridden for a, a long time, period of time, even after, he, even after recovering from that illness or that, that surgery or whatever it might be, uh, they will find themselves having to uh, do physical therapy again. Because their muscles have begun to atrophy. They don't work the way they used to work. Even that can happen within a matter of months. And so suddenly they realize, oh, my muscles have not been getting exercise. Therefore, they're not working for me anymore. And so, so in order to stave off that muscle loss and that deterioration as we get older... It's, it's important for us to exercise our bodies, to work out, right? To, to do some of that strength training, get, get a little bit of a resistance in our lives, right? Well, it's the same with our spiritual lives. I'm not going to stand up here and, and um, I'm not trying to encourage you or convict you about your exercise habits or are you, have you worked out five times this past week? Actually, you know, physical fitness is of some value, right? It's of some value, Paul said in 1 Timothy in chapter 4. But your spiritual fitness, your spiritual health, your spiritual growth is of infinite value. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He uses this term, work out, which, which actually means to produce or to do or to accomplish or to perform. And all of those words would seem 
seem odd in this phrase to perform your own salvation or to do your own salvation or accomplish your own salvation. But really the word itself means, uh, although it's translated all these different kinds of ways, what it really means is to to bring about something, uh, to bring about a result by doing something. In other words, our salvation is not passive in the sense that We don't have any part in it. Our salvation is one in which we respond in faith and then we walk in obedience. We work out our salvation in that sense. And so it really has to do with spiritual fitness, spiritual health. And what does this working out specifically mean? Look at verse 12 with me. He says, Therefore, my beloved... Or the beginning of 12, sorry. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. He's saying to them, You you guys have always been good at obeying. You've always obeyed God. You've always obeyed the truth. You've always lived it out. Not only in my presence when I was with you, but but much more in my absence. You're like the children who I can leave home on a Friday night, and when I come home... They've not only obeyed the rules, but they've gone above and beyond. The kitchen is clean. The living room is straightened up. The clutter is gone. The rooms are clean. They're all gathered together with hands interlocked, and they're praying, and they're reading the Bible together. And, well, maybe that was what was happening in Philippi. But he was saying... You've you've been obeying even more in my absence. I know that. I've heard of it. I've heard that you've been obeying. But what he says is, so don't stop that. Work out your own salvation. Keep on obeying. Keep on working. And and then how does he say to do it? Look what he says in the very last phrase, because he says this this is important. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He just finished telling them, that God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That should strike fear into our hearts. There should be a reverence and an awe That's why I use the word awe, uh, to work out with awe. There is an awe before God, this fear and trembling. The the nation of Israel, the the children of Israel at, at at the foot of Mount Sinai experienced fear and trembling. As they heard the sound, as they saw the, 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 the mountain covered with fire or, 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 or clouds, and, and they could see uh, something going on up there, an earthquake, an explosion, maybe God caused a, a volcano to take place. I, you know, it's hard to get our minds wrapped around what was going on, but there they were at the foot of the mountain in the presence of God with fear and trembling. And that's not the only story. I could tell you about Isaiah. We heard his, uh, some of his prophecy, Isaiah 65. But if you, if you back up about how many? 59 uh, chapters. You'll be at Isaiah chapter 6. And you'll see Isaiah's uh, personal encounter with God in his holy temple. And he is saying, I'm undone. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. What do I have, uh, what do I have to offer here? I cannot be before you, God. No one can and see God and live. There's a fear and there's a trembling to our salvation. We work out with awe because God is powerful. God is worthy to be obeyed. And so we do that. And here's something about the fear of God. When, when we look at the fear of God, it's not, it's not about the fear of of being punished. 
It's not about the fear of disappointing God in the sense of He's going to judge me if I don't get this right. Or if I don't do this, He's going to punish me. Something bad is going to happen to me, right? And we go, the lightning might strike. Well, that's Zeus. Okay, that's Zeus. That's not God, Yahweh, the Heavenly Father. And that's certainly not God as He has presented Himself to us in Christ. It has always and was always the kind of fear before God. It's the kind of fear of meeting your hero for the first time. And your knees start to knock together. And you get butterflies in your stomach. And you're like, what is that? What is that I'm feeling? It's fear. Embrace it. (laughs) Embrace the fear. You know why you're afraid? Because you are going before somebody you love and adore. Somebody who is awesome in your sight. And the last thing you want to do is say the wrong thing or make a mistake or embarrass yourself. You want to be on your best foot, right? Before this person who you, uh, you love and, and you just adore and you worship. That is the fear. That is the fear that we must embrace coming before God. Not a fear of punishment, but a fear of disappointing someone we love so dearly. What about us? What is it that is driving us, uh, uh, pressing us forward to work out in that sense, to work out with awe? With fear, with trembling, our salvation. What's motivating us for that? What should be motivating us is what Paul said, very, the very next thing, it's God who works. God who works. He, go, he said, immediately said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then it's as if he was, he's dictating this letter and he goes, oh, hold on, put this in there. I don't want them to, I don't want them to uh, mistake what I'm saying. I don't want them to misunderstand. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works, we work out with awe. But then next he says this, uh, God works, we do all with trust. We do all with trust. The next few verses here um, give us an, uh, a picture in the Philippian church and what Paul expects of, the, of them and what the Spirit expects of us and, and how it is. He actually uses all these, these words and phrases that are allusions to that, that are harken back to the history of Israel. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And these all things that he's talking about, these are, well, you can back up in the text if you'd like and just see what does he tell them to do. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that you're standing firm in one spirit. With one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened in anything. Um, f- the, that you believe in him. He says you, it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. That you be engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. That, that you should complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. That you do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That in humility you can count others more significant than yourselves. That each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That you have the mind of Christ in you. Those are the all things that he's talking about. So if you're wondering what verse 14 means, do all things, it does mean all things. And there's no room for grumbling, and there's no room for disputing in the Christian life. Period. But specifically... He's talking about these things that he's been exhorting them to already. Their unity, their oneness in the Spirit, their, the fact that they're suffering for Christ's sake, that they're contending or, or they're in a conflict with their opponents, and they're not grumbling about it. They're not disputing about it. How should we do this? How should we do that? They're majoring on the major things, and the minor things they're not, con- they're not concerned about. Those are not, those are not questions for dispute. Those aren't questions for arguing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. There was a time when the people of God 
um, were known for their grumbling. They were known for their grumbling in the first two years of the nation of Israel. The establishment of the nation of Israel, um, even prior to Mount Sinai, even prior to receiving the law there, they were complaining about things. And then they got out there and they started complaining about the food. They started complaining about the water. They started complaining about this and that. Then God gets them up there and they're right there on the edge of the promised land. And it's before them and they can see it. And so they choose a man from each tribe, 12 tribes, 12 men, to spy out the land and they see that it is good. And they see that it is amazing. And it's all that God had told them it would be. It's all there for them. And they come back and they say, Yes, indeed, the land is good. But there are giants in the land. There are people there who will destroy us if we step foot in there. And what did they do? The Bible says very clearly in Numbers chapter 14, verse 2, and they grumbled. They grumbled. They complained. They said, there's no way we could do this. Well, there were a couple of men who said, they, they disagreed. They, 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 they voted uh, against the majority. And they were overruled. And that led, that led the nation of Israel to wander in the wilderness for another 40 years until that entire generation had died off and the, the new generation had grown up who were going to fulfill God's purposes for them. The grumbling and the disputing, the disputing, that's the opposite of the unity that, that Paul has been exhorting them to this entire mo- time to, to stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side to have the same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. Grumbling or disputing. I have a feeling, and uh, I'm, I don't think I'm alone in this, that this was a potential problem in Philippi. The, the believers there were so wonderful. They were participants in the gospel, and, and, and Paul had such a loving words for him. In, in fact, he... he Verse 12 there, he says, My beloved. Therefore, my beloved. And, and he talks, talked before about his longing for them and his yearning for them. He loves them with the affection of Christ. And, and he thinks the world of them. But he senses that they're prone to grumble. Prone to dispute. but Prone to wander as the... The hymn says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Aren't we all? Aren't we prone to get frustrated when things aren't going our way? Aren't we prone to, to, to insulate ourselves when, when hard times come? And we may grumble about it, and we may dispute about it, we may argue with one another. Lord, I look out at you all and I see the Philippians there. I see people who are, who are obeying and are growing and are seeking to do what God wants them to do. But, but, if we are not careful, if we don't heed this warning, we will follow the path of the children of Israel and we will end up Lord knows where. I don't want to find out what wilderness God might send us in individually or as a church through our grumbling to Him, through our disputing with one another. Rather, He says, do all things without these things. And, and, and to be positive, look at verse 15. He says, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Uh, keep going with me. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. Oh, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff here. A bunch of wonderful stuff. But all of it is allusions back to the Old Testament. When he said that they are to be blameless and innocent, verse 15, he says, this is what I want you to be. This is the reason why you should do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that this will result blameless, innocent, and that is pure. 
The children of God without blemish. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Paul, or not Paul, but Moses was receiving the words of God to the people. And, in, and right at the end of, of chapter 31, Moses says to them, here's the deal, guys. You're about to go into the land of, of the promise. And I'm not going to go with you. I am going to be absent from you. And here's what's going to happen. I, I would like it if you were uh, obedient in my presence and much more in my absence. But see, what's going to happen is you're going to disobey. You're going to drift away into your own ways. You're going to lose trust in God. You're going to grumble and dispute. You're going to complain. And then you are going to end up being the children of God with blemish. In fact, you're going to end up being a crooked and twisted generation. That's what he says, that's what God said through Moses about his own people predicting, foretelling the time when they would just wander away from God. Instead, Paul takes those words and he says, this is not who you are. This is not who you are becoming. Why? Because we have Christ, and you have Christ in you, and you have the Spirit in you, and you have God who works in you. And you are going to be children of God. You are going to be without blemish. You are going to be blameless and innocent. And the crooked and twisted generation is not going to be you. It's the people around you. And he turns it on its head and he points out that that is who we are as believers. We as believers are children of God and we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. A twisted generation. Twisted is just that. In some translations that uses the term perverted. But what it means is something that is, is so twisted and, contor- and, and contorted that it's not the way it's supposed to be. Do we not live in a generation like that? Where we look around us and we go, what? Is right wrong? Is, is up now down? Are we living in a, in a world of opposites? Yes. And guess what? So were the Philippians. And so has every generation who has tried to live faithfully for God. He says there, to shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. That's a reference back to a a passage in Daniel where Daniel, the the Lord is is speaking through Daniel and and speaking about his own people. How they they ought to be shine as stars in the world. And, And that should, whenever we think of shining as lights, we ought to be drawn to Jesus' words when he said that you are a light that you should let your light shine, that you're a city on a hill, and, and that you don't take a, a light and, or a lamp and, and hide it under a basket, but you let it shine. That's its purpose. That, that's who you are. What happens, though, when, when, we, are, when we are complaining, grumbling, disputing, uh, when we're disobedient to God, when we, when we say, oh, my salvation is already bought, by Jesus. It's good to go. It doesn't matter what I do. What happens to us? We become dull. The light begins to go out. The, 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 the covering, the, the lampshade, if you will, or, or the, the orb that covers the light becomes blemished. And it doesn't shine so brightly. In fact, it can get to the point where it doesn't illumine anything. That's not what we want to become. That's not who we've been called to be. Instead, he says to hold fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life. What he's talking about here? Shining, holding fast. He's talking about witness. He's talking about our witness in the world. By the way we live our lives, by the words that we say, when we do all with trust. No grumbling means that we trust God. The problem with the 
the nation of Israel is they didn't trust God. They trusted in their own selves. So when it came time to meet their enemies, they said, we can't do it. Because their faith was in their own ability. And, their, and our own ability will always let us down. Are you willing to... So here's, here's, here's where it might come down to us. What would trusting God look like for us in this context? Are we willing to trust God in order to invest the time and effort into what He has called us to? What we know is right? Are we willing to, to, uh, to sacrifice something else and trust God that, that if I invest this time with the Lord, say, daily in, in the Word and in prayer, if I, if I invest this time with other people, uh, witnessing or, or being in fellowship with others or helping others grow in the faith as, as Paul was, was so eager to do that, that he's, I, I, I want to remain, I know I will remain and I'm going to continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. That's what he was after. He was motivated by by his relationship with the Philippians to help them grow. Are we willing to trust God like that? To love others without conditions. To invest in other people's lives. To make disciples. Maybe that's a discipleship group. Maybe that's missional community where you can uh, practice serving together in special ways. Fellowshipping together. Growing together. Are you willing to trust like that? Finally, and this is, this is the, the kind of the capstone of it all, God works, we rejoice together with hope. We rejoice together. He, he goes right into this phrase, right at the end of verse 16, he says, so that in the day of Christ, where have we heard that before? Have we heard the day of Christ before? Verse uh, chapter 1, verse 6, the day of Jesus Christ is when, when we know, Paul knows, that our, our gospel, our, our, our process will be brought to completion. Um, it, he, he says that in verse 10 of chapter 1, he, he wants them to approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And then, and then, and then he refers to the time the, that... that that when Jesus, uh, that at His name every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, he, he's, he's looking forward to this day of Christ. He even says, I, uh, to me, for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain, because if I leave here, I go to the day of Christ. I, I see Christ face to face. And so he brings it back to this, this, what this technical term is, eschatological hope that they have, this end times hope, this, this culminating hope. Our lives and our, and our histories and our eternities are culminated in the day of Christ. And he says that when I get to that day, I, I, I don't want to feel that I've run in vain or I've labored in vain. I, uh, he equates the, the Christian life as a race to run. And he doesn't want it to have been in vain. And his labor, his work, he doesn't want it to be in vain. He doesn't want to be like a farmer who goes out to his fields at the harvest time and he says, I did all that work, but there's no fruit. There's no produce. He doesn't want to be like that. And he will not be like that. <laughs> and he will not be like that. He's not saying that I'm afraid that this is going to happen. He's saying... That I will be proud. I, I will boast, is what he says. He's using the same term that he used in chapter 1, verse 26, when he talked about glory in Christ Jesus. That's a boast. It's a boast in Christ Jesus. He wants to be able to, in that day, when the Philippians have run their race and have finished their labor, and he has run his race and he has finished his labor, he wants them both to stand before God, before Jesus, and be boasting in what God worked in them. He believes and he knows that the Philippians' success in working out their own salvation with fear and trembling is 
Paul's own success. His own success. Here's a, that's a real powerful statement about unity. About what the church is supposed to be all about. That, and why I use the term community, overused as it may be. But we have to get our minds wrapped around the fact that we belong together. That one person's success is our success. That even, even outside of this local body, another church's success is our success. That we may run, but not in vain. We may labor, but not in vain. When we pour into a life, and then that life moves on to some other community, some other local body, and has success there, we rejoice. Even if, he says, even if, even if, Paul says, I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. What he, is, what he is imagining there, what he's envisioning there is another Old Testament illusion. It's, it's the, sacrificial, the sacrificial system. They would come to the temple and they would offer a sacrifice. And sometimes that sacrifice, oftentimes, that was an animal sacrifice. A sacrifice of a goat, a sheep, or a lamb, or, or a ram, or a bull, or, or something like that. They would offer that sacrifice. Other times, they would offer a sacrifice of grain. It was, it was it, you know, they tithed however they could. <laughs> we tithe with our money. We give a percentage of our money to the Lord through the local church. They tithed what they had. Because they didn't always use currency, they don't always use uh, money, but they had grain. They had sheep. They had herds. And they would bring these sacrifices. And when they would bring the, the grain offerings, they would include a drink offering with it. An offering that they would pour out on the sacrifice. And that's what Paul is envisioning there. There's a, there's a sacrificial offering that the Philippians provide, and then there's a drink offering that he provides. And... What does he mean by that exactly? Well, he's talking about their faith. Their sacrificial offering is an offering of their faith or trust, belief. So I think what he's saying is, you trust God in your circumstances. You are trusting God and you are living worthy of the gospel of Christ regardless of the circumstances you're in, which are not good. You're suffering for the sake of Jesus. You're suffering for the gospel. You're engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. That's what you're going through. That is your faith, your sacrificial offering. And Paul says that I am being poured out as a drink offering. I am imprisoned for Christ. I am suffering for Christ. I am, I am experiencing all of these, these things. And together, together we make an offering that is pleasing to God. Uh, an offering that is for His good pleasure. It's all worth it because Paul has his eyes on the prize, <laughs> so to speak. That's quite an alliteration. Probably shouldn't have used that. But it just came out. But he's got his eyes on the prize. He's got his eyes on the day of Christ. He's got his eyes on hope. What he hopes in. And so, therefore, he can say, even if that happens, and he's, and he's basically saying, this is what's happening. <laughs> you and me both were suffering for Jesus, and it's pretty awesome. He says, I am glad, and I rejoice with you all. It's interesting, these words are so similar. It's almost, I would rather translate it as, I rejoice and rejoice together with you. I rejoice and rejoice together with you. And then he says this, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He's not saying, it's not a suggestion in his mind. Grammar's a little bit wonky here, but the point is, you can take it like this. You rejoice. 
You rejoice together with me. Uses the same words. He wants their joy to be his joy, his joy to be their joy, and he wants their joy to be together. That they're rejoicing together based on or in light of what God has done. Why? Because they hope. They hope beyond this world. This world and the difficulties that we have for the sake of Christ is worth it. It's worth it. Because we'll be in His presence. We will be there at the day of Christ. And we will boast. We will boast. We will glory in Christ Jesus. God works in us. We live to obey. A little shorthand of that might be this. That we are motivated. We are motivated to obey Him by our love for Him because He first loved us. It's pretty beautiful. Not a, not a, we're, not a, we're not duty-bound Christians. We're motivated by love. The love that He has for us. The love that we have for Him. And it, that's such a powerful expression that, that back in Deuteronomy 6, um, Moses could exhort the people, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then Jesus and, and the later Jewish teachers could pick up on that so that he could say, that is the greatest commandment. I mean, it all, all of the law and the prophets hangs on that one thing, that we love God, that we do all of these things, that we do all things, that we work out our salvation because he has worked in us. What would that look like, you guys? Learn to love and obey uh, learn to love and obey uh, God's Word. Uh, serve together. There's, and, and there's no better way to express unity, togetherness, but in community with one another. Share what you have. Share what you know. Share Jesus with others. Let your life shine. And, and let people see. Let people... Let people in on the secret of the hope that you have. That the life that you live is not an accident and it's not in vain. It's for the glory of God. It's to point to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that... I pray, God, that we will have the ability by you, that you will do work, such a work in us that, that we can obey even today the message that you give us and that tomorrow when you speak to us again, we will obey then as well. That the day after and later this week and when we get to midweek or we get to the end of the week, when we get to the weekend and Lord, I pray that at that time our love has not grown cold. I pray that at, at that time our, our muscles are not, spiritual muscles are not atrophied. I pray that, that when we leave here and we're absent from this place, uh, we will not be like, like children who, when their parents are away, think they can get away with anything. Father, you are, you are too worthy for that. You are great. You are awesome. Help us, God. Help us in the name of Jesus. I pray. Amen.